0: wonderful vision that he lives by. And let me just tell you a few things about Chris. And so Chris uh, grew up on a dairy farm just outside of the London area. He uh, he went to Wilfrid Laurier University and then he would go on uh, to do his seminary work in the States at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And um, along the way he would marry his wife Lisa and I don't know what it is about pastors and five kids but they have five kids together. And, um, and then he went on to serve with the power to change and is now at Hope Church Mississauga. On a personal note, I would just like you to know two things about Chris. If you uh, spend um, any amount of time with Chris, you'll quickly come to know that he is a passionate disciple of Jesus, that he's a loving brother, and that he's a caring shepherd. And so Chris, I know that you're good friends to our pastor, you're a good friend to the broader staff, And you're a good friend to this body as well. And so we are excited to have you here this morning. Thank you for coming. And so, will you join me in welcoming Chris to the pulpit this morning?
1: That was very kind. Thank you, Utah. Um, It is a real joy to be here. Uh, You need to know that your pastor, Pastor James, uh, is a real blessing to, I'm sure your body, but also to many, many others. Uh, I've gotten to, to get to know him really, really, I think for the last three, four years, and uh, we get together usually once a month. Um, as a fellowship, there's several pastors in the GTA that get together. And your pastor kind of is a pastor of pastors. He leads by example, he leads and sets such a great model of love and care, loving God's Word. I don't know if there's uh, more people that I know who is so passionate about the accuracy of God's Word being rightly taught, and it's a joy for me to to really become a friend of his, and it is a real joy to be here with you this morning. Thank you for giving him uh, some time off. Uh, That is a real blessing. To give him some rest with his family. That is a, a real kindness that you have given him. Well, we are going to be in God's Word this morning. And so I'll read that in just a moment. If you can turn to Psalm 67, just kind of crack your Bible in half, go a little bit to the left. It should be around there. And that is where we are going to be today. I don't know about your home, but my home loves to sing. Uh, We love to sing. If you pop over, you will hear someone singing somewhere in our house. Could be upstairs in their bedroom, could be downstairs in the basement, in the kitchen, maybe while they're doing dishes. Uh, Definitely in the shower, everyone does that. And it is just such a, uh, a thing in our house. I love it. I love it that there's just kind of this melody in the background, this kind of playlist that's being sung in our home. And something we try to do often, it's been hard after the Christmas break getting back into this routine, but we love to gather as a family for uh, family worship. And we try to keep it really simple, just read, pray, sing. We try to read a little bit of the Bible, pray, and then sing. And I love it. I love being able to sing uh, as a family. We're just all around there. Maybe we'll grab... Uh, A song that we sang on Sunday, like this new song that you just sang. It's a great song. I was in tears over here the last time I sang that. One of the last times was in Nepal with New Believers. It was the first time I ever heard it, so that's what I think of when I sing that song. Um, Or maybe it's a a, a hymn. Uh, Lisa and I have collected old hymnals over the years, and we'll crack those open. We'll sing some classics with the kids. We love to sing. The other time I love singing is here with this church family. When you hear the voices of God's people, God's people who have come from all over the world at times, from different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds, sometimes languages, and they are with one voice declaring the glory of God. That's a beautiful song. I love to hear God's people sing. In fact, that is so inherent within our faith. It is right and natural for Christians to sing. We are actually saved to sing. If you go to Ephesians 5, you'll notice that one of the marks of a Christian, one of the fruit of the Spirit, actually, is to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody from your heart to the Lord. It's very natural to sing as a believer. It's kind of like the sap that runs through the family tree. It's in our blood to sing. And so it's not surprising when we open up our Bible and right in the middle is an entire section of songs that we call the Psalms. And so that's where we find ourselves in this Psalm, Psalm 67. And so I I love, I was talking to Utah earlier, I understand it's a a tradition of yours, a wonderful custom to stand for the reading of God's Word. So why don't we do that now and I'll read Psalm 67. Hear the Word of the Lord. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As you can see here, Psalm 67 is more than just a song. It's really a prayer, a plea, a petition by the psalmist for God to do something. And this song is really mapping out a vision of the mission that God is on and the call for God's people to be a part of that mission. And we see this right at the very beginning here in verse 1. It's interesting how it starts off by saying, may God be gracious to us and bless us. There's that petition. There's that prayer request. God, would you bless us and be gracious to us? Now, this would kind of jog our memory in thinking about where else have I heard this? And we can go all the way back to Genesis 12 where God makes a promise to Abraham in verse 2 and 3 of that chapter. This is what God promises. He says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Now, of the many things that are being said here, there's two incredible, unconditional, no-strings-attached promises that are being made to Abraham. One, God promises, I'm gonna bless you, Abraham. And two, I'm gonna bless the world through you. I'm gonna bless you, Abraham, and I'm gonna bless the world through you. Now, there's a lot of confusion today When we start talking about the word blessing, what does it mean to be blessed by the Lord? When uh, someone sneezes, you say, God bless you, or maybe you're sending a text or an email and you say, God bless. Uh, Maybe you hear someone on TV saying, if you send in $1,000, God will bless you. And so there's lots of different ways in which that word is getting used in our day, and so it's good to be able to define that biblically. We can look at all sorts of different Old Testament passages, New Testament passages, but if I could just kind of distill it down to this, I would say that to be blessed by God means to experience the fullness of God or to experience and know all of the goodness of God. Uh, One passage that brings this idea together, both in blessing God, which is to thank and honor and praise God for His goodness, for his goodness of blessing us with the entirety of his goodness is Ephesians 1 verse 3. Where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So you get this, this combination of we respond in praising God, in blessing God, and thanking him for his blessing, for his goodness. To be blessed is to know the fullness of God's goodness. That doesn't just mean his goods. It means his goodness primarily, his presence, who he is. When God comes into our lives with all of his characteristics and all of his attributes and all of his perfections and reveals himself to us, that is entirely good. And when we begin to experience the blessings that flow from God, When God comes into our life and he's showing up here in Abraham's life, and we see in Genesis 15 that Abraham, in Genesis 15, it says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham enters into the saving relationship with God and begins to know the blessing of God. What it means to be forgiven, what it means to be washed clean, what it means to be adopted and brought into his family, What it means to be credited and clothed with the righteousness of God. That he might stand blameless before him and walk blamelessly before him. We see all of these incredible realities of God's blessing. To know God and to know the fullness of his goodness is to be blessed by God. Now how how does someone enter into that? Well just like we mentioned with Abraham. It is not... Uh, something that you can buy, it's not something that you can earn, it's not something that you can kind of, you know, leverage God into. It is something that is given by grace through faith. That is the only way that we come to know the blessing of God, is by grace through faith. And not just kind of this mystical faith, this ambiguous faith, it is faith in God's Word. This is where we learn about God, The Word of God is God's own description of Himself, His self-disclosure. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is my promises that I bind myself to my people that I love to fulfill. And as we read God's Word and believe what we read about God, we come to know the full blessing of God. We begin to experience first unto salvation and and then day to day after that we begin to grow as our understanding of who He is and all that He has done and all that He has said deepens in our own soul. We begin to experience what has already been given to us. There is nothing greater than you, that you would ever dream of wanting than getting all of God. And as soon as God reveals Himself to us and enters into our life and we are saved by grace through faith, we get all of God and He gets all of us. And we begin this process of growing and deepening in our understanding of who God is, believing all that He has said through the Word of God. The blessing of God is very comprehensive. We were just looking at Ephesians 1, verse 3. We, were, we saw how God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And he's talking about spiritual blessings, that is, not just the immaterial ones and not the material ones, he's talking about how this is spiritually from God, this is given from God to us. And sometimes, we as believers have kind of set aside the the material blessings that that God also includes in the whole comprehensive idea of blessing. And that's because, in our day, it has been greatly abused. When God talks about blessing, He actually does mean a whole, robust, comprehensive blessing, both spiritual and physical. But as we read the timeline of Scripture, as it unfolds, what we see is that the physical blessings that God promises and guarantees to us in Christ are what awaits us when He returns. Right now, all the spiritual blessings of Christ are ours, being washed clean, being forgiven, being adopted into God's family, being having the Holy Spirit dwelling and sealed in our new heart. These are all true right now when we can begin to experience the joy of those realities. But I still have this old body, and I still live in a broken world, and God does all of this on purpose. He, he delays the physical blessings that are reserved for us when He returns. When we see Him, we'll be made like Him. We'll have a resurrected body like His, and then He'll bring us into a new heavens and a new earth, which in holiness and righteousness dwells. That's when we will experience the absolute comprehensive blessing of God, physical and spiritual. But in the meantime, we wait In faith, trusting that God can, if He chooses, to give blessing. He may give me a promotion at work, He may not. He may heal me from cancer, He may not. But He only does what is best for me to what? To grow me in Christ, to foster that faith. The will of God is my sanctification, it says, Thessalonians. That is to make me like Jesus. So whatever will make me like Jesus to the maximum degree, that is God's plan for me. I don't know what that is. And so I pray along with Jesus using that model that he used in Luke twenty-two forty-two 42. When he was in Gethsemane, he said, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We, we want to be able to pray like that here. God, I believe this would be really, really good if you would heal me from this. God, I really believe this would be a really good thing if you allowed us to move here, or if I got that job, or God, I really believe this would be a great spouse for me, but God, not my will, but yours be done. At the end of the day, I know you actually know what's best for me, and so I peacefully, contentedly surrender to you, knowing that you are my loving Father. You will give me all that is needed to grow me in Christ, because I have you. I'd rather have you than any of these other things, as good as they may be. If I have you, that's all I need. I am blessed because I have you, I have all of you, and in so doing, we grow. This is what it means to actively, practically experience the blessing of God here and now, joyfully growing and maturing in our understanding of all the blessings spiritually that we have right now, all that awaits physically in the new heavens and the new earth as we fix our eyes on him and the hope that is coming, And in the meantime, continuing to prayerfully surrender our lives to him, trusting he is good, and he only does good to his children, to those whom he has come into their life and made them his own. That is what God is actually promising Abraham in the blessing of God. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I am going to disclose my full goodness to you, and through you to the world, to the world. As we'll see, this ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in a few different ways. But this is the promise, this astounding promise that God gives Abraham. This, Abraham doesn't even realize the package he just got. The incredible package of blessing that God just promised. Not because Abraham was good or checked all the boxes, God decided to show up in Abraham's life and give this. Now, as we keep reading, it talks about how the, the, a new metaphor is used here at the end of verse 1. It says, May God bless, may God be gracious to us and bless us. That's the first request. And then here's the second one: May God make his face to shine upon us. May God make his face to shine upon us upon us. This is another phrase that's used in the scripture quite a bit to describe the way God, his, his ongoing position towards his people, that his face would shine upon them. Again, this would jog our memory back to another person in the Old Testament named Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was the first high priest in Israel, a mediator on behalf of Israel and God, who would, who would help through the sacrificial system allow for sinful Israel and the people of Israel to, through sacrifice by faith, atoning for their sin and allowing them to draw near to God, that there may be a closeness, an intimacy between God and his people, that God may dwell among them, that he may be in the midst of his people. And here's Aaron, and God actually gives this prayer that Aaron was to pray and really pronounce over his people. And it was found in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. It says this, "...the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance, His countenance upon you, the, the radiance, the light of His face upon you and give you peace." Do you hear how psalm 67 is pulling from that psalm 67 says be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us what's happening here is he's pulling from this this promise from abraham and this prayer from aaron and saying god would you do this in our day would you do this would you be so kind to fulfill these promises in our day and i don't know about you if you've if you camp or not, or if you've ever been uh, maybe dragged out onto a retreat, and it was raining the entire time, and you're just cold, you're wet to the core, all, you, you, you don't even know if the sun exists anymore, it's just been overcast for so many days, and then suddenly the clouds part, and there's this shaft of sunbeam coming down, you can kind of see it coming your way, and then suddenly... Phew, It floods over you and you just kind of, even as your eyes are shut, you feel and see the light coming through and you just feel the warmth all over you just like sunlight is soaking into your soul and it's so encouraging, so assuring, so warming. This is a picture of what God wants his people to feel, experience, to know that God has done some things objectively, that allows us to experience that kind of love from the Father. Sometimes as believers, we, you know, we know enough of the gospel that we know God's forgiven us, but he's still not really glad about it. You know, sometimes you kind of wonder if he regrets saving you, like he maybe could have used that gospel stuff on someone else, maybe got a better bang for his buck. And you, you walk around with this self-condemnation that, yes, 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 God's forgiven me, but he really doesn't like me. He really doesn't care about me. He actually regrets saving me. That is the most unbiblical idea ever. God loves his people. God, from the beginning of time, it says, in love, Ephesians 1, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 3, that, that we are loved with this everlasting love, this unfluctuating eternal love that God began to love us with before we were even made, before we were even conceived, before we had done anything good or evil. God loved us with that kind of a love. He sings over His children. He loves His kids. He smiles on them. Yes, because of our sin, we can grieve God, And as we take steps of faith and obedience, we can please Him. And yet we need to know that His love doesn't fluctuate. I used to tuck tuck, uh, my older daughter into bed, and uh, she was particularly wrestling with this. And so uh, for a season, I would tuck her in and say to her, Now, honey, is there anything you can do that would make me love you more? And she would say no, because she knew what I was going And I said, uh, is there anything that you can do to make me love you less? She said, no. I said, so you know that dad loves you no matter what? She goes, yes. And I'm trying to reinforce and detach her performance from my love. And this is something I think that God really is constantly trying to remind his people that your performance has nothing to do with his love for you. This is what it means to have the smile of God on us, positionally, being adopted into his family, to know that even when I sin, it is God's, he's not surprised, God wants us to immediately run to him, not away from him. He wants us to confess, he wants us to repent, he wants us to begin walking with him, he's like, that's okay, I knew that would happen, let's keep walking, let's keep rolling, keep believing, keep trusting. This is what it's like to have the smile of God, and this is really the prayer that is being prayed here. God, would you, the psalmist is praying, God, would you fulfill this promise to know the full blessing of God that you gave Abraham? Would you fulfill this prayer? Would you answer this prayer that you gave Aaron, that your face would shine on us, that we would know the peace and the grace and the blessing of God? Would you do this in our day? This is a dangerous prayer. God, would you bless us? It's dangerous because I think we can think of all sorts of different examples in our day in which it's been distorted and abused and twisted into something very selfish. God, would you, make, uh, would you make me rich? Would you make me famous? Would everyone on Facebook and Instagram love me? Would I be awesome? That is not what this text is saying. The reason why God would not just encourage us but command us to pray that God, would you bless us, would you be gracious to us, would you cause your face to shine on us, is for four reasons. And the first one is this. One, we pray this way so that all nations will sing his praise. All nations would sing his praise. We see this in a few different spots here, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5 constant, this constant refrain in this song, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God wants all peoples to know him, to delight in him, to be glad in him, to praise him. He wants them to sing. Now, when the Scripture talks about nations, we should probably just clarify: He doesn't mean these geopolitical groups that we have on our maps right now, all these different colors and whatnot. And those those shift and move around. As you know, history: uh, the boundaries of countries move around quite a bit. The word for nations is ethnos. There is this is where we get our word ethnicity. These are groups of people with a recognizable, distinct language or culture. So these sociolinguistic groups are called people groups, ethnicities. This is what the Bible has in mind. There's about 16, 17,000 different people groups that have been identified on the globe. And this is what God has in mind, that all these peoples, people from every one of these ethnicities, every one of these languages, this is what Charles Wesley had in his mind as he was writing that song, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Oh, that there would be thousands and thousands of tongues and languages worshiping God. This is the idea, that we would sing His praises and cannot help but sing to others. God his plan, this is how he designs this, is that he would so satisfy his people that they would be so amazed and awed at who he is and all that he has done, experiencing the blessing of God, that they would not help but sing. And as they sing, the world's kind of leaning in, listening to the lyrics and saying, is that your God? I want to come to know this God. I want to start singing this song with you. I remember it was 2002. I was on an airplane somewhere over the Atlantic on the way to a mission trip. I brought a book with me. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And I think maybe in the first page or so, there's a quote that completely changed the way I viewed what it means to be on mission or a part of the Great Commission. And this phrase is this. It says, missions exist because worship doesn't missions exists because worship doesn't. Wherever there's spots in the world where worship of the one true and living God is not happening, that's where we have to go on mission. That's where we have to go on purpose singing the gospel so that they would hear the lyrics of the gospel and believe in the Lord and be saved and be saved to sing. This is one of the reasons the psalmist gives us of why. Why would would we pray, God, satisfy us, bless us, let us experience the fullness of your goodness so that we would be moved to sing and nations would hear the lyrics and they would join the choir. Second reason. Second reason here in verse two, it says one of the reasons we want to pray this dangerous prayer that God would bless us is so that the nations would know his saving power, as we just said. It gets very explicit here in verse 2, that your way, that means so that, here's here's the reason, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God has this way of saving people, this saving power, he's got this way of doing salvation. Maybe that reminds you of Isaiah 35, where God talks about this highway of holiness on which the redeemed walked. Not not the super spiritual, not the hyper Christians that check all the boxes. That's not what it says. It says the redeemed, those who were purchased up out of slavery, out of their garbage, out of their sin, and washed clean and brought into a relationship with God and brought onto this highway of holiness. Holiness simply means to be utterly devoted utterly devoted. So now they have been given this new heart. They're walking on this new way. They're utterly devoted to God. And then Jesus shows up and says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Suddenly we realize that this highway isn't this piece of asphalt. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ that God says He is the way. He is the only way that leads to God and to experience the full blessing and goodness of God. Now, where I live, I live in Brampton. I'm surrounded by lots of people from lots of different religions. And we just had a couple over last night. Uh, They're Hindu, and uh, he just got back. Uh, He was in India. And so we got to talk. He was over celebrating a festival that happens every five years in his state. And so we talked a lot about that. And we got to share a bit about our story. We got to share a little bit about Christ. Didn't get to go into great depth. It was the first time we got to have them over. But as we get to know our neighbors, as we interact with our coworkers, maybe family members, we begin to realize that there's lots of messages out there that other religions are saying. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Atheism, they're all saying something. They're all saying that there are multiple ways to enlightenment, to God, to paradise, to salvation, however they phrase it. And there's lots of different ways to do that. But Jesus actually says, I am the way. And so if they don't lead to Jesus, they don't lead to God. And so we lovingly go and be able to explain to them the way of Christ. When I was in India, I was talking to one fellow who had a kind of a power encounter, experienced a a healing in the name of Jesus. And so he had just kind of added Jesus to the kind of hierarchy of gods that he worshipped. And so Jesus is now probably in the top three. This is not what Jesus is saying either. He's not... He's not calling us to include Him in all the other idols that we worship. He's calling us to exclusively trust in Him as Lord and Savior, that He is alone the only way to God. God Himself, the Father at the Mount of Transfiguration, says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Luke adds his voice to this by the Spirit in Acts 4, verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, among mankind, among all nations and ethnicities, no other name by which we must be saved. We could spend a a million lifetimes chasing down a million rabbit trails and all dead ends. Jesus has already made a way, the way, in himself. This is why he calls himself the door, the narrow gate. You must pass through. You must press in and believe in Jesus alone to get to God. And as a believer in Christ, you have entered that gate. And so you've been given a story. If you're a human and you've trusted in Jesus, you have a testimony. You have an incredible tool by which now you can go and share. Share with your neighbors, share with your coworkers, with family members. What has God done in your life? Not in such a way that it's kind of like, well, this is kind of this worked for me, and so maybe it might work for you. Not in that kind of relativistic way. You're able to then, in a different way, be able to share, no, this is what God has done in my life. Christ does this. You need to trust in Jesus. I want you to experience God. What does it mean to be forgiven of all your sins? What does it mean to actually come into a relationship with God? What does it mean to actually experience a joy that never leaves, a a peace that surpasses all understanding, though trials come? What does it look like? You have a testimony. My prayer is that God would ignite in your soul again. You'd, you just kind of think back. You remember that time when you were like 5 or 15 or you were in college or wherever you were. You were at work. Maybe it was just a couple of days ago. And you remember when it was fresh. You've got a story. I'm praying that that would rekindle in your heart this desire to go and begin to sing your testimony. Even if you're tone deaf, go and tell your story that God has given you. Don't feel like you've got to jazz it up a bit and add a few things. God's given you, it's the people that I've talked to that have a really, really good testimony with lots of bad stuff in their history wish those pieces weren't in their story. So whatever story God's given you, it's on purpose. He wants you to use it and tell those who haven't heard it. Tell your story. So, God calls us, commands us to pray, God, be gracious to us. God, would you allow us to experience the fullness of your goodness that we would be so satisfied, we would sing, that your saving power would be known among all peoples. And thirdly, here's the next reason, that the nations would see you as their shepherd. That the nations would see you as their shepherd. Do you notice here in verse 4, it says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Four. That word for tells us the reason why. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. This idea of God judging and guiding are really the role of a shepherd. And in God's sovereignty, He is, he is shepherding the world. This word judge... Um, It's really getting at the idea of governing. God rules and governs. He makes good decisions in the world. He can cause nations and kings and presidents to go in this direction and that direction. He is in complete control of world history. Doesn't matter what's going on south of the border or in Iran or wherever, God is in complete control. And he sees everything nothing is missed by his eye. And what causes the nations to praise him is that not only does he see everything, but then he will judge with equity, with fairness. You can't buy God off. You can't bribe him. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism with God. He's fair. And so this is the idea of people who are oppressed and suffering under injustice, they cry out to God. Does God see this? Is He watching? Does He care? And He does. And He will bring everything into account. He will right every wrong. And this is a real picture of, of God, as, of the nations crying out to God under the oppression of sin, under the oppression of sinful rulers and crying out to the true judge. Because God is constantly seen as this father to the fatherless, this protector of orphans and widows, the one who loves to come along the poor and the needy and lift them up out of the ashes and draw them close to himself and bring justice on their behalf. The other word here is guide. And this is really getting the idea of how a king would guide a country. Or a commander or a colonel would guide his army. How parents guide their family. Uh, This is, uh, no one would know this more. No nation, no country would know this more than Israel themselves. As God is repeatedly described as the shepherd who guided them. He rescued them up out of Egypt and then led them through the wilderness. As Psalm 78 said, carrying them by his everlasting arms as Deuteronomy Uh, 23, uh, 32, talks about. Here's God, this perfect guide, this perfect shepherd, leading his people. So that Psalm 23, David can say, and the nation would say alongside him, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. What more could I have? I have him. I have the shepherd, and he knows my needs. He will give me all that I need. That is why he is worthy to be praised. He is the perfect judge. He's the perfect guide. He's the perfect shepherd, not only for your own soul, but for all peoples, which is why the peoples are to praise him, why all nations would want to come under his shepherding care. And it's interesting, in verse 6, it says, The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. There's this picture that it's beginning to happen, that Psalm 67 is beginning to be answered even in the psalmist's day. You get this idea that he's picturing the world almost like this barren field, this fallow field, but as God's people begin to sow the seed of, this is what God has done in my life, this is who he is, these are his characteristics, this is what he's done, and the great wonders of his works, and they're just sowing the seed, it's beginning to fall on good soil, And people are beginning to respond. You can go back all throughout the Old Testament. You're beginning to see the increase, the harvest, the yield of the world, the nations beginning to come to the one true and living God. You'll think of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He was a Midianite pagan priest. And yet when Moses recounts all that God had done in bringing Israel up out of Egypt, Jethro declares that Yahweh, the Lord, is God. You'll think of David. And David, when he, before he became king, already there were people from neighboring nations joining themselves, not only with David, but to David's God. You have Hittites and Canaanites and Jebusites joining themselves to the one true and living God, forsaking their old gods. You have King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba who comes and hears and sees the wisdom of God in Solomon. She goes, I didn't even hear the half of it. And she declares that the Lord is God. You see these people coming from the nations and beginning to really, we see the fulfillment of this psalm partially. But something happens. Something happens repeatedly, actually, in Israel's history. That they know this song, but they stop singing it. They stopped singing it. You know, like, you can go through phases. The song that you just heard, you love it, it's amazing, it grips you, and then sing it and sing it and sing it, and then it kind of loses its luster. And then you're kind of looking for that new song. And Israel started looking for new songs. They started listening in to the lyrics of the nations around them. The very nations that they were supposed to be a light to they now laid aside their song of light and began to embrace the darkness around them, believing in the gods of the neighboring nations around them. And they became as lost as they were. And so the song was dwindling in who was singing it. And so then we're at this point of wondering, is God going to keep his promise? Is this song going to stop? Does it just get archived? What about that promise that God made to Abraham? Is that ever going to be fulfilled? What about that prayer that Aaron prayed? Is that ever going to be answered? And there's this growing tension throughout the Old Testament of what's God going to do? How is he going to answer and fulfill these promises and prayers on behalf of a very sinful, sinful people and nation? And He does it by fulfilling them Himself, by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, born as a baby in the flesh, incarnate, like chili incarnate, like in the meat. Jesus comes, fully God and fully man, to fulfill the promise given to Abraham and to answer the prayer of Aaron. He comes as the great descendant, yes, of Abraham, literally descendant physically of Abraham. But as the true seed, as the true offspring, the one that was looked forward to even from Eve who is given this promise that from her there would be someone that would come, an offspring, a seed that that would crush the head of the serpent, that would reverse the curse of sin. You see in Jesus now, he is the descendant of Abraham through which all the blessings of God come to the nations including Jew and Gentile, as they by faith trust in him and get grafted in, they begin to experience the blessing of God. You see Jesus as really the greater Aaron. He's the great high priest, the true mediator, who not only brings us close to God, but being God himself and fully man is able to reconcile us and as First Peter 3.18 says, actually bring us to God and actually enable us to be adopted into the very family of God, and actually have the third person of the Trinity dwell inside of us. This is all the work of Christ, the perfect mediator, and the fulfillment of Aaron's promise, the great high priest. Jesus alone is able to do this, and he alone fulfills Psalm 67. He sings it perfectly, he does it perfectly, and now he enables us now to enter into that, And begin going alongside his mission in calling all peoples from all nations to trust in him and know the fullness of Christ. This is already happening in our days, and we see this. This is not a new idea. Way back in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God himself said, It's too light of a thing that you, my servant, who we know as Jesus, Should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, for all ethnicities, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing that God would just send Jesus to save the Jews. He intends to send Jesus and has sent Jesus in order that all peoples from all nations would come and trust in him and know the salvation, know the blessing, know the goodness of God. And Jesus himself says in John eight twelve, I am the light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are seeing this Unfolding even in our own day. I don't have time to go through all the different details, but there are about three quarters of a billion believers around the world, it's estimated. Uh, not simply Christian adherents, but evangelical born again believers around the world. That's about one in ten people on the globe. Right now, the gospel is going out, and we are seeing people put faith in Christ at an incredible rate by the best estimates, twice as fast as conversions to Islam and three times as fast conversions to Hinduism. That is, we are seeing the gospel going out at such a rate and speed that is just so unique. Right now, for example, in China, there's about 6% evangelical population. That means that there's about three times the amount of Christians in China as citizens in Canada, just to put that into perspective. But when you realize there's 1.3 billion people in China... There are still many people groups, especially in the tribal areas of China, that have not yet heard the gospel. But the gospel is going out in incredible ways. It's spreading, particularly in the Muslim world. There have been more converts to Christianity in the last 50 years, from Islam to Christianity, than what had been recorded in the previous 1400 since the beginning of Islam. We're seeing right now in places like in Iran. Iran, which is in the news quite a bit today. But I don't know if you're also hearing of the astounding work that God is doing in the spreading of the gospel. Right now, year by year over the last several years, people are coming to Christ. The population is shifting over to trusting in Christ by 20% each year. If this keeps up, within three to four decades, Iran will have a majority evangelical population. That's all happening behind the scenes. You won't hear that on the news. But God is working. Why? why in that place and not in Jordan? Or why not in Kazakhstan? God is working in those places. But why are we seeing? We don't know. God is working in astounding ways in places around the world. God is at work. We are seeing a harvest come in. And yet knowing that there is still much work to be done. We think of places like Pakistan that have over 200 million people, 99% of them Muslim, very little to no access to the gospel. Who is going to go and share the gospel with them? Oh, we think of India. There are about six to 7,000 people groups in the world that have little to no access to the gospel. About 2,000 of them are in India alone. It's one of the most unreached places on the globe. God is at work in different pockets, different cities, different areas, yes, but there's so much work to be done. There's over half a million villages that have no recorded history of the gospel ever coming to them, ever. There is so much that we can be doing, but how can they hear without you, without us, as it says in Romans how then will they call upon him whom they have not believed how are they to believe on him whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching someone going someone singing the gospel to them there's a third category actually that I just wanted to highlight there are there's a whole group of people groups that have had the gospel at some point in their history that have been exposed and they've heard about Jesus and have often experienced great revival, and yet over the years and decades and centuries have then since abandoned it. It's very very common in the, in the Western world, continental Europe, uh, commonwealth countries. Again, you can just list off what is going on. Uh, 3% of Portuguese around the world are evangelical, 3%. 4% Dutch. 0.5% Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. Half a percent would call themselves evangelical born-again believers. But the people group that, that really stands out is the people group that God gave this song to. Of the 15, 16 million Jews around the world, only a half a percentage, 0.5% of them, believe in Jesus as Yeshua, Messiah. There is a need for us, having heard the gospel song, to now begin going back and singing to these nations, both Jew and Gentile. This is a part of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all ethnicities. This is our call to not just make conversions, but disciples teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And you can do that. We can all be a part of this calling. Sometimes we think that, oh, you know, to to be a part of this great commission, to be on mission, you got to get a plane ticket and cross some time zones with a backpack and land and tell people in a different language. Yeah, that can happen. Or you could just cross your street. You could just invite someone into your home, see your kitchen table as as a mission field as you invite your unbelieving daughter down and your unbelieving neighbor over, you begin sharing the gospel. It's a great opportunity to touch the nations. We live in a very, very unique time in world history, in globalization where we have people going and moving everywhere. 200 years ago, two Shipley brothers came from Northern England to Canada, and they settled. And then they invited some other family members to come over. Some of them died on the way. That's a a little bit of my history. Basically, everyone in Canada, almost everyone in Canada has immigrated at some point. Why? Why is God moving these nations? Is it not so that they might have a greater opportunity to hear the gospel? So that they might have a greater opportunity to hear about the Son, Jesus Christ, the only way by which people can be saved? It's not because he really wants them to get that school degree or work that job. That's not his primary reason. His primary reason is all about Jesus, that they may have a greater opportunity to hear Christ. And you're that person's neighbor. You live beside them. You work in the cubicle beside them. You sit on the bus beside them. Everything is on purpose. You are here for such a time as this to sing one song and so would you prayerfully sing this song with me I'm going to skip my last point is this mission going to be fulfilled I mean this is kind of big I mean there's a lot of people groups and uh I'm just me just little me got a little job live on a little street and a little house Ooh, what can I do A lot. A lot. Especially as we begin to work together as a family. As we begin to work together as a family and begin to think about, and with eyes wide open, who is around me? Who has God placed around me? We can be playing a part. I'll close with this. Here are three ways in which I think we can practically play a role in this. One is to pray. Pray. Pray that you would sing this song. You know, you're here because someone sang the song to you. And you heard it. and You believed it. God gave you a heart to trust in Him. To sing it. And so would you pray, God, would you teach me the song again? I kind of lost the melody. The tune is a little foggy. Can you teach me that again? Pray. Ask God. Secondly, give. Give. Keep giving to the fulfillment of this song. I was so encouraged uh, Brad and Emily Morris were staying at our house while they were here during your missions conference. They were so encouraged by your church, so helped by your prayers and your heart for the Quebecois, an unreached people group in our own nation. 0.5% of Quebecois are born again just six hours down the road. They were so encouraged by your fervent prayers and your gifts, your giving. It takes cash to fulfill the Great Commission. Money it's not evil. It's what we do with it. God has entrusted it. It's all His. It's all His. And I, I want us to think would you pray, God, would you help me steward all that you've entrusted to me for the maximum giving toward the, the Great Commission so that as many people, as quickly as possible, would hear the gospel? Maybe that means we're going to downsize. Maybe that means that we're going to move. We're going to be a part of a church plant. I don't know. I, Pastor James didn't tell me to say that. I just I'm praying. Every church is should be constantly asking God, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to move? How can I play a role in spreading the gospel as effectively as possible in such a time as this, in such a town as this, in such a region as this? Maybe it means that you end up moving out of Georgetown. I don't know. Wherever wherever God plants this church, we're praying. God, would you help me be so surrendered? Whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm yours. Pray, give, not just money, but yourself. And lastly, go. Go, be on mission. Go and get to know your neighbor. Invite them over. Bake your best dish. It's great. And then invite them to bake theirs. Make it a bit of a potluck. Be a learner of other nations, other cultures. Be on mission and go maybe it's not maybe it's not only to your neighbor not only to your coworker but beyond maybe God is calling you to overseas missions to actually directly go to one of these hard places there's only hard places left welcome to the 21st century so what is God going to do i want to encourage us to do these three things pray give and go and in so doing all peoples from all nations will hear the gospel. We know that this is going to happen because God promises it in Revelation 7. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every ethnicity, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There will be people, representatives from every people group. The mission will be accomplished. You are going to be a part of it. Let's pray that God would lead us in knowing how. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we would never come up with this. Thank you that the wisdom of God is seen in using us as weak vessels. Lord, I often, just on the way over, just thinking there is no dollar butter knife than me and yet you choose to use us. These little, little instruments. But it doesn't really matter about the capacity of the instrument, but the capacity of the one who yields who wields it. And Father, you can do all things. You get much glory out of using very weak vessels. Would you use us, not just individually, but together as a family in spreading the name of Jesus? Teach us the song again. Teach us to sing the gospel wherever we are. We ask this